And we are continuing on in our series through the book of Exodus. We are taking a week to look at each Ten Commandments. And uh, it's as a reminder that these Ten Commandments are not uh, God's uh, grade sheet to kind of rate how you are doing, but actually God's blueprints for a beautiful community. These are his instructions for what does a kingdom look like that is in line with God's uh, desire and will. And so Exodus 20, verse 15, simply says, You shall not steal. You shall not steal. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us. We pray that as your word created everything out of nothing, that here in this moment your word would create in us new lives where there is death. That your word would break into the deepest parts of our heart and our soul and to speak us back into life in Christ so that we individually and we as your church would be a picture of your beautiful community. Father, only your word can do this. We pray that your word would. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, many of you know I just got back a little over a week ago uh, from spending about 10 days in in Kenya with uh, some of our ministry partners there, Pastor Sam and Amos and others. And the day after I got to Kenya, Melly, Pastor Sam's wife, uh, took me on a little mini bus called the Mutatu to drive down to the African market in downtown Nairobi so that I could buy a few gifts to take back home. And the market was filled with a bunch of vendors uh, sending all kinds, selling all kinds of tourist things from uh, Maasai blankets to soapstone carvings of elephants and rhinos to a coaster set of the big five animals that you can see in Kenya, the lion, the leopard, the elephant, the black rhino, and the African buffalo. And just as we were getting ready to go into the market, this man on the side jumped in front of us and said, hi, are you looking to buy something? Let me show you my goods. And so, without much of a choice, we followed him into the market, and he led us to this blanket with all kinds of various soapstone carvings and plates and a few other little trinkets. And within a minute, before I knew what was going on, he placed four different items in my hands to try to entice me to buy them. And he said, is there anything else you would like to buy? And I said, well, I'm looking, you know, for this and this for some of my other kids. And he said, well, let me walk you around. And he walked me around the market and helped me pick out a a handful of new things. And then I said, all right, I've got everything I need. He said, great. Well, this is how it works. Let's go over to the corner here and we'll put everything together. And that way you can get a good price and we'll negotiate on what that should be. And so he took a piece of paper and a pen and wrote down 35,000. I glanced at it briefly and said, okay, that's 35 bucks. That's actually a pretty good deal. Now, I hadn't gotten any Kenyan shillings yet, and so I asked Melly, would it be all right if, if you paid and then I'll pay you back um, once I get a chance to go to an ATM? And so then they started talking back and forth in Swahili, and they did this kind of intricate dance where she would you know, notice any blemishes or defects in the things that I had picked out and, and pushed for a lower price. And then after a little while, she just pushed the paper and I said, this is, this is way too expensive. We can't do this. And so then the man, sensing that she wasn't budging, turned to me and said, Mr. John, what would be a good price for you? And so I said, well, I thought 25, or 35 sounded pretty good, but Melly didn't. I'll trust her. So what about 25? But Melly said, no, that's still a lot of money. And, uh, or 25,000, that's what I said. And then the negotiations went on for another 15 minutes. She said, no, this is still too expensive. Let's go. 
So we walked out of the market, but the man followed us and said, well, no, uh, what do you want? How much will you pay for this? And we got the price down to 10000 Now, this seemed like a really good deal to me. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be ripping this guy off. And then Melly looked at me and said, are you sure you want to pay this much? You know, the quality isn't so good. This is about $100. And suddenly I realized, oh, shoot, I'd been, you know, dividing by not enough zeros. That what I thought was $35 was actually $350 for a few cheap trinkets. And we had gotten the price down by almost 75%, which sounded great, until I realized 75% off was still a ripoff. And so we walked away, and the man was a little bit upset. And he said, thank you for wasting my time. And Melly, uh, as soon as we'd gotten uh, a little further away, said, you know, as soon as they saw the white man, the prices went up by 500%. And uh, this is a common you know, tactic that uh, they would use of unsuspecting uh, tourists. We were talking to Melly's uh, daughter, who said, oh yeah, they have brokers at these markets now, right? Who, they don't actually own anything, but they just get the tourists on the, before they come in, and then gather all the things and upsell them. They take most of the profit and then give the actual vendors who are running these businesses just a small amount of what they actually made. And so Melly later went to the market, without the white man, and purchased almost all the same things, and the total cost, $35. You know, now, this type of thing provided some good entertainment you know, for me and stories to tell you all when I get home. And yet, imagine, though, living in a society like that, where that type of everybody trying to find some angle, everybody always adding a little bit to the price, is built into the culture. And it is incredibly frustrating to live that way. You talk to some of our brothers and sisters there in Kenya, and it makes it very hard to live as a Christian sometime because everybody expects a bribe or a little bit on top or everyone is stealing a little bit for themselves. And how do they as Christians live in that sort of society? Now, when we think of stealing, we tend to think of someone just breaking into your car and grabbing your bag. Or maybe like in the movies, a big heist where these world-renowned criminals come up with a master plan to break into a vault somewhere in Vienna and take an ancient artifact. But when scripture speaks of stealing, it is a much broader idea, something similar to even what I experienced there in Kenya, where everybody is looking for a way to sneak in a little more profit, to line their own pockets along the way. And you can even have cultures of stealing that develop where everybody is trying to get a little bit extra, and it can erode an entire society, where no one has trust for one another, and everyone is trying to take advantage of the other person to get ahead. Stealing is almost like sand in the gears of a working society, and it just grinds everything down. So what I want you to remember this morning is stealing erodes society. Stealing erode society, and we're going to look at it just two ways. First, the principle. What does the Bible tell us about stealing? And then what is the Christian response? So stealing, very basically, is just taking something that's not yours. And presupposed, then, in this command is that people can actually own things. And if there was no such thing as personal property, well, then there would be nothing to steal. All of your possessions, it would just, life would be like a big game of musical chairs where as soon as you stand up, someone else can take your seat and there's nothing you can do about it. And you've just got to go find one, steal one from somebody else so you're not left without a chair. But God has given us a command to not steal, which means that people can rightfully own property, money, and other things. And it is wrong to take it from them. 
But God allows for trade, for the transfer of property. Markets are good things. This allows people that have a lot of something to trade it for something that they don't have a lot of. And everybody wins. Business transactions, when done properly, are, are good things, where they're fair. Each party, it gets a, it's a win-win no one is taken advantage of. That is good. It is not a zero-sum game. But it becomes stealing when one party is deceiving the other so that the transaction is imbalanced, or there are clear winners and losers. Stealing can be in the form of in a pandemic, when someone is trying to sell single-ply toilet paper for $5 a roll. There are clearly winners and losers in this transaction. Or when you pay for a healthy goat, but then the one that you actually grab has a disease. When you buy some land, but then the person moves the boundary markers after you walk the property. Martin Luther writes, stealing is not just robbing someone's safe or pocketbook, but also taking advantage of someone in the market, in all stores, butcher shops, wine and beer cellars, I wonder what Luther would say about Utah, <laughs> workshops, and in short, wherever business is transacted and money is exchanged for goods and services. So stealing can be blatant, you break into the car, you take someone's bag, or Job 24 verse 4, there are those who move boundary stones, they pasture flocks, they have stolen. You have stones that mark out your land, your fence almost, and someone comes when no one is watching and moves your fence posts so they can claim more land. They, they take a few sheep that have wandered to the edge of their property and pull them into their flock. Stealing can be more subtle, though. Amos, 5, or Amos 8, verses 5 and 6, it describes these crooked, crooked merchants who say, When will the moon be over, the new moon be over, that we may sell grain again? And the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat. They, they, they can't wait for the shops to open up again. And then it says, why? Well, because they're skimping on the measure and boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales. Some people make a sport out of stealing. It becomes addictive. You, you say, how much can we get away with? This was a particular problem back in the time of the Old Testament. In Israel, the shekel was the basic currency. And initially, the shekel was actually a measurement of weight before it became currency, and it was a little bit less than a half ounce of silver. And there wasn't a central bank back then that printed money or, or stamped coins, but anybody could make their own shekels out of silver. And so you always wanted to make sure that these shekels that you were receiving were actually the correct weight. And so merchants would often have limestone rocks, which would be you know, harder to, to, to adjust once they were set, that would have like a half stone or a half shekel mark on it. Here'd be a rock that has a one shekel mark on it. And you would take a scale and say you were selling five shekels worth of wheat. You would put five one shekel limestone rocks on your side of the scale. And then the person buying them would put his shekels on the other side and it should even out. But if you were a crooked merchant, you might get some stones that weighed a little bit less than that. And, or a little bit um, more so that when, or less, so that when you put your shekels on, it looks like the other person hasn't given enough silver. And you say, oh, you're, you're, you're skimping on your shekels. You need to add a couple more pieces of silver to balance the scale. And they might not know that you actually had a crooked scale. And so you're cheating the people by giving improper weights and measures. 
you know, this kind of fraud is maybe a little less common here in the U.S. because we have a department of weights and measures. If you go to the gas station and you can see there's a certificate there that say this uh, gas pump has been certified that it actually is pumping a gallon of gas when, you, when it reads a gallon of gas. And yet there are many places in our world where you go to the gas pump and there's no such thing. It might read five liters of gas, but it's actually been adjusted so it's always giving you 10% less than that. And they're stealing a little bit on top. Maybe the way that we struggle with dishonest scales in our society is when we fudge on our timesheets. And you say you, you bill the client for this amount of money, but you always just round up a little more than you're supposed to. No one will notice. And then you pocket some of that extra pay you get. Or maybe it's cheating or, or pushing the lines on your expense account using things for personal use that are vague enough that you'll, they, it won't get caught, and you realize everybody else is doing this, so why can't I do it as well? And I mean, the company makes a whole lot of money. Why don't I get some of that? Well, that might be true, but it's still using dishonest scales. It's still stealing. And stealing is often very subtle. It's not just these things that are left up to you know, vagrants and criminal masterminds. It is so easy for us to get involved in stealing. When the tax collectors started coming to Jesus, and Jesus, they asked Jesus, well, okay, we're tax collectors, not a very popular job. What should we do, Jesus? And Jesus doesn't tell them that they need to quit their jobs. Jesus says, no, it's okay to, to take a right amount of taxes. But he tells them in Luke 3, verse 13, don't collect any more then you're required to. And don't always add a little bit to the top. And, and often people do this in ways that look very legitimate. They don't say, I'm going to always just steal a little bit more. No. Say that you're supposed to collect 30 shekels for the tax, and then the tax collector says, well, I'm going to add a four-shekel processing fee that I'll just put into my pocket and then pass the rest of the tax on. And soon some other tax collectors learn, oh, this guy's charging a processing fee, let's do that too, and we can earn a little bit of extra money. And now imagine if you become a Christian, and to follow Jesus means you give up that extra source of income that you've gotten used to, because he says, don't take any more than you've been required to. And sometimes stealing, we're so used to it, we don't realize we're doing it. And to follow Jesus means we actually have to give up something we've gotten used to. Or consider Matthew 21, verses 12 to 13. Jesus enters the temple courts and he drives out all who are buying and selling there. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He, he uh, accuses these merchants in the temple that have made a business out of worship as stealing. They're robbers. Why? Well, the temple was supposed to be a place where God's people communed with their God, a house of prayer. And these people have turned a business, made a business out of that, so that they're robbing God of the worship and time and devotion that's due him. Stealing is, is kind of putting yourself in the middle of a transaction, where this person is supposed to get something, God is supposed to get worship, and the theft occurs when they take that thing that God is supposed to get. You can rob God when you take from others 
what is due him. As you read through scripture, we start to see how stealing is so common in business settings, in cultural settings. Everybody does it, and no one thinks it's stealing. But God looks at it differently. Are both sides getting a fair deal? Or is one side using their size or their leverage to take advantage of the other party, and they have no recourse? Another example of stealing, 2 Samuel 15. When people brought a case to the king for judgment, Absalom, who was the king's son, would ask where in Israel they were from. And they would tell them their tribe. And then Absalom would say, well, you've really got a strong case here. It's too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. I wish I were the judge. And then everybody could bring their cases to me for judgment, and I would give them justice. Absalom is standing outside the the gates of the city as people come in with a dispute. And what's he saying? Man, I wish there was someone that could represent you because you're just going to get taken advantage of in there. And then what does it say later on in the text? Absalom did this with everyone who came to the king for judgment. And so he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. Stealing is taking something that doesn't rightfully belong to you. He's stealing the hearts of the people, people that should trust their king, have their devotion to their king. He was a good king. And what does he do? He uses lies and manipulation to get their allegiance and take it away from the rightful place towards the king. And he's doing it in a way that looks so innocent, so deniable. I'm not stealing. I'm just trying to help them. But in it, he's undermining the very system of trust that's been built up. He's flattering people. He's telling them what they want to hear. He doesn't care if they have a good case or not. He just wants them to like them so that they would be on his side. And that can be a form of stealing. You're stealing people's loyalty. I think that is actually one of the most common forms of theft today in our country. It's the the problem with with politics and so much of the news that is alongside it. Two examples I heard of recently. I was listening to a podcast with H.R. McMaster, who was the former national security advisor under the Trump administration. And he noted, he was incredibly discouraged because how common it would be, there would be some uh, article that a news organization wanted to run, and he would look at it and say, this is patently false. And his aides would talk to the reporters and, and say, look, Here's the information. What you're going to run is is untrue. It is false. And yet, essentially, the message they got is, well, we don't care if it's true or not. We just care that this, this headline is too good not to run. It will get attention. It will pander to the people that we're trying to reach. You see, the politics and the media has stolen the hearts of people so that they're more concerned about what will play well to our base what will get attention than what is actually right. And it's not just one side of the political spectrum that is doing that. Both sides are stealing the hearts of the people. I just finished reading this book about Eddie Gallagher, who was a Navy SEAL and charged with war crimes for things that he did in Iraq. And it was pretty clear the SEAL community was essentially universally agreed that what he did was far outside the lines, and they were working through the process to uh, judge him for that, kick him out of the community, make him face consequences for what he did. And yet the conservative news media 
loved the narrative of, oh, these higher-ups punishing our young troops for fighting ISIS instead of uh, the idea of the news media upholding justice. They didn't care whether or not he was guilty, but they loved the story and how it would fall in line with their narrative for what they wanted to say. They, too, stole the hearts of the people, caring more about what would boost their ratings, what would get clicks and shares online, more than being what is concerned with what is right. I think this is one of the biggest dangers for Christians in America today, that we are letting people steal our hearts. You cannot let politics or the news media, whether it's CNN or Fox News or Newsmax or whatever website, steal your heart. Steal your affections for God. Steal your worship. Do you spend more time reading the news and getting worked up about everything that is going wrong than you do being reminded of the eternal and true news of what God has done in the world? Do you spend more time meditating on current events or meditating on Christ, who is eternal? It has something stolen your heart. So that instead of having this affection towards God, all these other things are taking your energy and your time and your affections. The media and politics and Christians have gone right along with it, are stealing the hearts of the American people, just like Absalom did with those Israelite people, and it erodes the society. Another example of theft is when we steal from God. Consider Malachi 3, 8 to 12. Should people rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever rob you? Well, you have cheated me of the tithes and the offerings due me. Now, Christians have different views of, you know, are we as New Testament believers required to tithe in the same way the Old Testament believers uh, did? That's up for debate. Personally, I think, Giving away 10% of our income should be a good goal for all Christians. God has been so generous with us, how can we not then pass along that generosity to others? Now, in some stages of life, that might need be possible. There might come reasons where you can't do that. And yet, for so many Americans, we call many things necessities that are more wants. Are we stealing from God? I think even a good practice is as you get more, are you giving away more percentage-wise and giving thanks to God for how he's blessed you and letting that be a blessing to others? Do you have a heart of gratitude for all that you have? Or are you obsessed about how can you earn that next couple thousand dollars? The principle of Scripture is that the first fruits of whatever we have belongs to God. That actually, it says... Everything belongs to God. All of your harvest belongs to God. Now, God, in his grace, he doesn't require that you give everything to him in that way because then you would starve. So what he says is, give me the first of what you have as a way of acknowledging everything has come from me and showing me thanks for what you have. And so in an agrarian society, so much of your wealth is tied up in the land, your crops, your flocks, animals. And so those first Vegetables are the first wheat from the harvest, the firstborn goats or lambs. Those you give to God, showing him, God, thank you for providing for us for another year. 
and we trust that you will continue to provide for us. Now, in our modern society, our paycheck has become our harvest. Right? That is the harvest, and we get it a lot quicker and more often than they did. But every cent of that belongs to God. That if God hadn't blessed you, you wouldn't have earned any of it. And the way that you acknowledge that is by giving back to him some of the first of it. And it's good to give to the church. I don't think all your money needs to go there. It's good to give to charities, and there are many other people in need. The reason we give is because God has given to us. And we've been given a lot, so we should help others receive as well, improve others' lives through our blessings. But don't miss fundamentally that the purpose that we are called to give isn't first off because others need it. That's in there. But it's because it's first about acknowledging in your heart that God has given you all these things. And then you want to share that love. Everything that you have is from God. And even, you think, well, no, I've worked so hard. Well, why did you work so hard? It's because God gave you the DNA and life that has that good work ethic. Your intelligence, your perseverance, your lack of student debt, your good job, behind every single thing that has allowed you to get to where you are right now is completely because God has given it to you. None of it is yours. None of it you can claim. He designed it all. And to not give him the first of those things is to, in one sense, steal it from God. Say, no, this is actually my work. It would just take God a millisecond to adjust a few variables in your life, and you would realize how quickly none of these things are actually yours. That you've been relying and assuming God's grace and stability in what you have. We owe everything to God. Well, so now we've looked at kind of how broad stealing is. I want to end our second point. How does this apply to our life here in the church? It's our response. I said if stealing is like sand in the gears of a society or it erodes the foundation of a society, sharing, which is kind of the opposite, the positive of stealing, is like a lubrication that lets the gears run smoothly in a society. So that church communities are not called to steal, but to share in order to help make a beautiful community. That is what we're called to do. And at JVC, we, we say that we are on a journey to know Christ. And one of the landmarks of our journey is that, uh, you know, are you sharing? Every person here, when you become a member, you are called to share what you have so that this community is a better place because you're here. Now, some have argued that in, in you know, the ideal Christian community, we just share everything and no one owns anything. We, we have something like a commune. And people point to the end of Acts verse 4 where in the early church, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they have. That's a beautiful picture. Everybody was giving so that there was not a single needy person among that church. And yet, in the next chapter, Acts 5, we read of the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who get caught up in that excitement to, to give things away, and so they sell some land, and then they come to the apostles, and they said, you know, Here's all the money that we sold the land for, and we want to give it to the church. Even though secretly they had kept some in their pockets for themselves. And that lie cost them their life. And Peter says to them, 
The property was yours to sell or to not sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. So we see even in the early church, there wasn't a requirement. Peter says, you didn't have to sell your land and give it to the church. And when you sold it, you could have kept some for yourself and given it away. But they were more concerned about how others saw them. And Peter, we see here, though, he still affirms those property rights. Joining the church doesn't require you signing over the deed to all of your assets. But at the same time, Acts 4 shows us that principle, that in the church, there should be no one in need, because through all the blessings that God's given us in this community, we are sharing with one another. And why did that early church feel like any, everything that they owned was not theirs? Well, it's because they realized it all came from God. That God had set these conditions in their life so that they could have these things. And who were they to hold on tightly to things that they didn't earn, but God had freely gifted them? God has been so generous for me. How can I not be generous for, with others? And so they readily shared what they had with everybody else. There's a sense in which you holding too tightly to your possessions and not blessing the broader community is stealing from God. He's only entrusted you with these things temporarily. Are you being a good steward of them? And that's what I want us to think about as we consider this command. Why can we be generous? Well, the very fact that the church exists is only because Christ shared of his life for us. He shared of his blood for us. He did not keep his righteousness for himself, but gifted it to the church and to his people so that we could be righteous, not through any work of our own, but by the grace of God. Christ has shared what is most precious of him with us. And so how can we not share with others, even when it costs us? Christ knew the cost of what it would be to share of his life, and he still did it. How can we then as Christians not be a generous people? Every single one of you, it's not just about money, it's about your gifts, your time, your talents. Whether you have gifts of encouragement or financial gifts or gifts of service or helping or teaching or counseling, is the Christian community and this particular church that you have wed yourself to benefiting from the gifts that God has given you? Is it like a rising tide that lifts all boats? Is JVC a better place because you've shared what God has given you? And as we, as we're a generous church, have been blessed, are we now sharing that with the broader community and the broader world? We must be a generous and sharing people. Let's pray. Our God, we ask that you would help us to do what is so hard because uh, we, we, we live like things are so scarce. We want so much for ourselves and n never are we satisfied with that we've got enough. There's always something more we want. We pray that you would change our hearts to show us how generous Christ was. He did not keep what was his to himself, but he gave it to us who, is, who were undeserving. We pray that you would help us do this in Christ's name. Amen.